Welcome to The Wave, Episode 3. We tell the stories of life. Historically, the textile sector was a key component of any approach to job creation in Africa. Indeed, in the early 1970s and 1980s, Nigeria was home to Africa's largest textile industry, employing over 450,000 people in its cotton fields and thousands more in its more than 250 mills. Burkina Faso was able to boast a textile hub where fabrics were produced for national consumption, while other countries such as Togo, Benin, Ghana, Ivory Coast and Mali also had budding textile industries in which fabrics such as kente and batik were home produced for local consumption. At the time, the newly independent African countries had a high purchasing power, much of it derived from robust textile and garment industries. Sadly, in the 1980s, several factors, including the IMF-imposed structural adjustment programs and bad policy choices, combined to sound a death knell on this lucrative sector so that today there is almost no vertical integration of the textile and fabric industry in Africa, and most of the cotton grown on the continent is exported in its raw form. In common with the cocoa or petroleum industries, with cotton, Africa is an exporter of the raw material, but an importer of the finished product with no benefit in the form of jobs or income generation for local populations in the value addition stage. In short, Africa remains a victim of the resource curse, a term which was first used by Richard Aute in 1993 to describe the paradox of plenty. Over the years, other factors have worked to undermine the African textile and fabric sector further. For example, the importation of second-hand clothing, as well as other textile and fabric products, which African governments allowed to occur as a response to the social inequalities that came with monetary devaluations. In essence, the imported second-hand clothes were cheaper and in greater volume than anything that could have been produced locally. To give but a few figures to demonstrate the size of the problem, the United States ranks first on the world's list of exporters of second-hand clothes, with exports of more than 756 thousand metric tons in 2018 alone. Much of that was sent to Africa. France, which ranks in the top five exporters, sent some 69,000 metric tons of second-hand clothing to Africa in the same year. During an online meeting on the African textile and fabric industry, organized by the Nigerian LGK Foundation in July 2020, African experts highlighted the importation of Dutch wax as another hindrance to the textile and fabric industry on the continent. In common with second-hand clothing, this fabric remains cheaper than any fabric of the same level produced on the continent because of its volume and ease of manufacture. Beyond this, however, is the fact that this fabric which is almost always seen as quintessentially African, tells an inaccurate story of Africa's savoir-faire and intangible heritage. It is originally Indonesian and was brought to the continent by the Dutch. While it has been appreciated by some on the continent, many reject it as being African, regretful that it hides the uniqueness and the diversity of traditional African fabrics. The World Trade Statistical Review, a report released by the World Trade Organization, indicates in its 2019 edition that the current value of world textiles and apparel exports stand at 315 and 505 billion United States dollars respectively. Africa has almost no share in that pie. On the contrary, 
The continent is the main receiver of those exports. However, in a context where some 12 million young people come onto the job market each year, a number that is likely to increase in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, Africa needs perhaps to look again to its fabric and textile industry, with a view to revamping it as a means to create jobs and generate income for those so desperately in need of finding a livelihood. just uh, introduce myself. My name is Sheldon Kopman. I'm the creative director and designer at Naked Ape. We are a menswear fashion brand and we're expanding into ladies wear. Um, pretty much bespoke, pretty much crafty and slow fashion is what we do. I am pleased to host you this episode of The Wave on Textiles and how we can make the textile industry in Africa an engine for job creation and income generator. Allow me to introduce our panel members today. There is Aysa Dion, is a Senegalese textile producer who works with luxury houses the world over. More importantly, and most importantly, she's an advocate, a true advocate, and more specifically, West African textile savoir-faire. Adil Lamnini is the president of the label Made in Morocco, which works to enhance Moroccan brands through the development of products and services. He's also the author of the book, Start Down, the real-life chronicles of a Moroccan entrepreneur, which endeavors to give young entrepreneurs pearls of wisdom on how to start and run a business. Last but not least, we have Anne Grosfeli. Please excuse me if I pronounce the surname incorrect, Anne. Anne is a specialist on African textiles. She has studied their history and is renowned for profound knowledge on African fashion history and is also an author and has a book out as well, which deals with textiles. So welcome to you all. Of course, one of the questions that's on everybody's lips and it's like the first question that ever gets asked. Do you feel that the COVID-19 pandemic has had a particular effect on the African textile sector? So Sheldon, let me first speak about uh, this industry in my country, which is represent uh, 27% of, uh, of the people uh, living in my country are working in the, in the textile uh, industry sector, which is very big. Uh, and considering this uh, part of a business that we have also now introduced the industry of masks and all this uh, adaptation that uh, our textile industry needs to do during this period, we have seen a lot of uh, problems in the sector and uh, let me tell you that uh, within the three first months of this pandemic from September to June we had more than 80% of the SMEs working in the textile industry were completely locked down so which is a very serious uh, matter within our country and uh, our politics also were very uh, were, were in troubles with these situations but now we see like uh, positive signs coming from Europe uh, because 
uh, we see orders, we see clients coming back to Morocco and uh, trying to work uh, closely with the sector, but we're still very prudent and we're still very conservative of what, uh, what we will uh, face within the next uh, three months or six months uh, by the, the spring 21. Well, so that's... 27% ideal is quite a lot of a, a lot of a huge chunk of your population within one industry that's amazing and we are talking about 15% of our gdp wow 15% yes which is because our textile sector is exclusively for export i see right so because we are also here in morocco working essentially subcontracting and also completely we, we export like 90 percent of our production to, to europe essentially well you guys definitely need to come give us a master class down south to help us get our exports up on that level that is incredible fantastic thank you ideal and can you expose your thinking around this uh covid 19 well, there are two aspects. The first, the French government had decided that the year 2020 would be the year of Africa, which means <laughs> Africa 2020 would have been the good opportunity to show all the potential of artists and designers from all over the continent. Unfortunately, due to COVID, the event has to be postponed until next year. So we don't know yet next year what's going to be done. So it's, it's really a bad opportunity because that was the year for the whole continent to show projects, to show the potential, the high quality, what Africa can do the best in art, in textile, in all the, the artistic and cultural fields. Another element which is more positive, it's like an anecdote, but for me, it means a lot. It's about wax print you know, the industrial print. The biggest company, the most famous company is Vlisco, and they're based in Holland. And they have their own partly companies in Africa, such as Uniwax in Ivory Coast and uh, GTP in Ghana. Mm -hmm. And because of COVID, Blisco was completely closed. Nobody could work. And what they did is they asked a designer, a Dutch designer, to design a wax print design, which says, take care of yourself, prenez soin yeah. de vous. And for the first time ever, they asked the company Uniwax in Côte d'Ivoire to print it. So it is branded Vlisco, but it is printed in the Ivory Coast, which means that this luxury wax print European uh, consider that today the company based in Africa can do exactly the same quality Absolutely. what they do in Europe. So it's only symbolic, but I think for me, it means a lot. It means yes. that Africa can produce very high quality. And they've done because last year in spring, they've worked with Christian Dior. Mm -hmm. So now Uniwax, a company based in Africa, who is employing 600 people in the factory, can be a model of excellence in industry printing, in wax printing. Fantastic. And thank you. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. So there's a lot of positivity that comes out of it all. And um, as we know, the African continent, we are very, very creative. So it's good to know and it's good for our European counterparts and the people that we are normally exporting to and the people that we often seek validation of our product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, are actually starting to get the message loud and clear. So Isa. Well, for me, it was not the most important question. I'm sure that we have the best 
cotton, you know, one of the best cotton. So we firstly have to produce the best quality textile. My thinking is that we have to clarify the term of African textile because sometimes we are speaking about industry. Sometimes we go back to traditional textile. When you want to revive something that has been disappearing, you know, we should go back to the basis. And the basis is cultivating cotton, then take out the seeds of the cotton. Another process, the spinning, is the process that has been disappearing from our countries. And for me, there is a lot of uh, basic uh, textile we don't think about and that we have forgotten about. And that is a huge market. And I kept saying last time, like, for example, the cotton, people picking up the cotton, they're using cotton bags. And to wrap the cotton in Senegal, they are importing bags for wrapping and from Pakistan. So this is already one product. Then you have the sheets, you have the curtains, you have the napkins. But it seems that we're all confused between all the techniques, the markets, because there is so many levels of market. We should focus on each one and what is the production that is corresponding to each market? Because we mix fashion, deco, um, basic products, like the basic to do, let's say tie-dye. We, we can produce now with our cotton, very high quality base for tie-dye or print. And so I think we should focus all the section, all the, all the option into the textile industry that we have. But now I can come back on the COVID. I can say that I don't know exactly what is the impact in Senegal because as we don't have any more textile industry, it's like uh, I can only speak about my own enterprise saying that for a few months we had some kind of, as we are exporting, so for a few months uh, we had some difficulties, let's say, but nevertheless I see now that it's coming back to normal very strongly. So the oh, impact is, is very little regarding our position in Senegal. Okay. Well, that's good to know. That's yeah. really good to know that it's not uh, impacting you like it is impacting like Adil and Morocco, for example, you know? So this leads me into my next question, guys. So basically, Aisa, you have been a textile entrepreneur in Senegal for a very long time. What hindrances have you met over the course of your career and how did you counter them? Well, when I started, I was like with one weaver in my courtyard. So it was like informal, very creative and easy. Let's say that I decided after a few years to create an enterprise. So I had to create jobs. I had to pay taxing. And I can say that the tax problem and fiscality in Senegal was one of our major difficulties. As you know, in West Africa, they hoping that we can transform the cotton, like even 5% of the cotton should be transformed. But we cannot do that because we have a 18% VAT. Every time we sell one meter, we have to pay 18% VAT. The tariffs are high. That goes, yeah. All this taxing is very high and it cannot allow people to produce really. Because if you do the analysis, you have at least 50 to 60% of your gain that is going to the government uh, when you have a formal enterprise. And it's a necessity to have a formal enterprise in order to develop your 
activity to export to widen your your market and that's the main difficulties and i think we should study special treatment for enterprises that are producing and working into cotton transformation no good all right then um okay i think then i said another question for you while we're on the topic a common criticism is that african traditional textiles are expensive and less competitive than other fabrics you as an ambassador for the preservation of nigerian traditional fabrics would you agree with this point of view as i was telling you earlier i think there's a big mix up when you say a general term of african textile you know you cannot yes. compare unproduced and mechanical produce yes so if you try to compare the two you will reach that type of question i think we should separate because each production can gain its own market regarding depending mm-hmm. on the creativity that is added to it and what we yes. are trying to do in our company is to have a mechanical side that is affordable and we have and produced collection and we trying to mix the industry and the traditional weaving which means okay. we call it a soft industry so when you combine the two of them you can really get to markets that can afford uh, your production yes right but it, you basically is naturally uh, more expensive than uh, mechanical weave is i mean there is not even question yeah. yeah you cannot you know it depends no, also on the fiber you use it's it, there are so many parameters that are getting into textile you have like a the weight the quality the threads you are using uh, the origin of the the threads the is so many so many so and so many diversity of textile production that is difficult to answer on a general terms of that kind of question because uh, of course and i mean as common as it is like people generally have this perception especially the western world that africa is just one country you know so as isa is saying like there's so many different layers and there's so many different nuances to creating a textile you know which will take me to an and and these are some of the things that you are discussing within your book could you please just further elaborate on what uh, isa is discussing at the moment yeah can you give a, a general overview of the history of textile please do in africa Uh, mainly in yeah. West Africa, I'm talking only West Africa textile. Well, the first thing I saw mentioned a lot cotton, but it's not the the first fiber that has been used in Africa. It's uh, raffia and also the the bark cloth, what we call tapa, that that were used in the past. And at the moment, uh, the archaeologists have only the proofs that all the process of cotton was people use it completely around the 11th century because they found fabric in Banjagara in Mali and they they know that at that period people were they knew how to gin how to spin to weave and to do tie dye with uh, mainly indigo and cola colors because nowadays we have a, an idea of africa as a, a colorful continent before the real african colors are very natural colors like uh, browns and uh, and blues and so at the time there were some otaki production like uh, mud cloth for example in mali where the women would spin the cotton would men would uh, weave it in strips and then they are stitched together to make a wrapper 
and it's decorated or uh, decorated with mud or decorated with indigo. So some people, some what we call say some tribes were doing the thing in the old village and some people would specialize only in one sector like the Soninke people, for example, they were amazing dyers, but they were not weavers. So they had to buy the fabric from another region. And it's the same for the weavers. Uh, the Ashanti people in Ghana, who are very famous for weaving, they live in an area where the cotton cannot grow for climatic reasons. So they had to buy the yarns in the north of what is now called Ghana in the Salaga region to get the yarns to be able to weave. So they were already between the 11th and the 18th century exchange for the textile production among tribes in the continent. The Hausa as well, the Hausa people around the north of Nigeria and also Niger, they were dyers and weavers as well and selling the products to other tribes. When Europe started the industrial uh, revolution, they went to Africa to get the cotton. And the, when Isa say we have the best cotton, an important point is that they didn't use the African cotton. They take the seeds off and they say, now you are going to use our seed for our industry because we want long fibers or white cotton. So they say, now you have to grow our cotton, the, the cotton we want to use for our industry, not your indigenous cotton. And they had the cotton from Africa, and then they bring back calico and also yarns. And so the dyers, because some of them were already dependent of other cultures, other regions in Africa, they started to use the fine industrial cotton to tie-dye indigo because they said, wow, it's fine. We can do very delicate tie-dye effect. Very, we can do stitching as well, like the Soninke people do. And it's the same for the weavers. They say, wow, the industrial uh, yarns are very thin, so we can do very thin weaving. And they also came with silk and colors as well. And the Ashanti people, for example, they use a lot of silk coming from scarves from Italy. And then they unraveled the silk to introduce it in the Kente. So very quickly, two centuries ago, African textile become a mix of uh, skills of local African savoir-faire mixing with material, dyes, yarns coming from outside and mainly from Europe. So it's very difficult to talk about something pure because it's all taking things from outside and mixing them with local savoir-faire, with specific, uh, like the manjak technique of weaving is very different from the Eve or from the Ashanti. Each tribe has developed its very own style but they would mix it with different colors, with different yarn. They would introduce lurex or rayon. And right. after the, the independence around the, the 60s, most of the African states in West Africa started to settle their own textile industry because they say, well, maybe it's better if we spin our own cotton, if we produce calico, if we produce yarns for our weavers. So it wasn't a matter of, is it craft or is it industrial? The matter was, is it African? And has it got an economical impact for our country? It's not a gap, uh, a competition between what is industrial and what is craft. The idea, it has to have an economical impact 
for the country and also we have to follow all the process between the raw cotton to know where it comes from who made which step so this was the issue unfortunately gradually the mills came a bit old and they have to develop the machines were getting old so they had to invest again and at that time around the 90s the french government decided to devaluate the cfa francs so the idea was to motivate the countries the african countries to export the raw cotton instead of transforming it and this is what the option that most of the countries have followed like mali for example you win double if you export raw cotton rather than transforming it and so they abandon gradually all the local industry i don't like when people say that africa is undeveloped country for me it is continent sorry it's more uh, disindustrialized which means that there used to be an industry a textile industry a strong lively textile industry but gradually things have shut down and when the mondial organization of commerce has decided in 2004 that there would be no quota anymore and that asia could export all the textiles she wants around the world then africa wasn't competitive enough they couldn't fight because they didn't have possibility to produce fabric anymore in mali itema comatex have shut down fasofani in burkina faso sobetex in benin enitex in niger all of sotiba in senegal all over africa the companies has closed 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 so now they are again dependent all the craft people are dependent of yarns coming from asia of uh, bazin damask calico for the dyers from imports they cannot find local textile to develop the craft anymore i think this is the yeah. for me there is no strict opposition between industry and craft the opposition is between what is africa and what comes from outside thank you and i think um that was a full mouthful thank you Anne. and i think it gives us all a clearer understanding of the sort of depth and the various different layers that we've got to dig down deep into in order for us to understand the complexity of our industry continentally and also the differences as what you've said and you know like what uh, the economical impact has on our industries what is industrial versus craft you know where do we draw the lines and are these lines can these lines ever be merged you know so ideal taking yeah. us to this particular point where i'd like to ask you how do you think we should market our handmade textiles as a differentiator from the more industrial commercial stuff that we do and how can we produce cheaper fabrics as morocco has proved to us they have done so successfully I would like first of all to to talk about this uh, the difference between the business models that we are talking about. When yes, you see good. when you see when you see today our industry and I'm talking with the with North Africa, let's say we speak about Tunisia and Morocco, the main business model concerning textile is subcontracting. We are working for European companies and that's all. And when it comes to create local or traditional production we have also to to take in consideration that we need to change this business model because when we are talking industrial we cannot have the same kpis talking about traditional 
textile manufacturing uh, businesses, okay? And uh, the problem is today is this specifications that the contractors are given to our companies, SMEs in, uh, in Morocco or in Tunisia. Let's talk about this uh, CSR responsibilities. Let's talk about ISO certification. Let's talk about uh, charters, supply, the supplier selection uh, processes and policies. How we can deal with this working with craftsmen's working with the people from, uh, from in, in, uh, living and working in countryside with poor situations, without any technology, with very traditional tools, and why we will compare our African or Moroccan or Tunisian or wherever uh, production to a mass market companies. This is my big question. Today, we are creating handcraft. And handcraft in the definition is unique pieces. Why I will compare myself, why I will let the people compare me with the mass market prices. We need to, to focus on a new business model, which is the handmade, high-end and traditional manufactured product. I have a very, very clear example that I can give you concerning the shoes industry in Africa. Today, our brothers from Ethiopia, Ethiopia are the number one in the world, leading this industry in the world. So they have succeeded in this field of choose. Why we cannot do the same? I have a very clear vision about this because we Africans, first of all, we are not talking the same language because in our lobbying processes, we are we still very shy because we don't have enough advocates, enough people to fight for our labels, our brands, know-how, our culture, our history our legacies within this small area of contractors. You know that in the world, there is a, maybe a club of 50 people giving all the contracts concerning this industry. They have created fast fashion. They have created, they are leading also the high-end industry, high-end fashion. Why we will not today work all together on this CSR responsibility that those companies have to take in consideration before sending this contracts with big issues with big problems that we will never ever can face at the end right. of the day at the end of the day is the chinese guy or a turkish guy who will respond to all this uh, applications and what's about our smes and our industry so ideal i totally hear you and i'm sure we all on this panel agree with you when it comes to niche products being produced out of africa for the rest of the world but as much as that it, there is that, and there's a demand for that, and there's a demand for this, there's an insatiable de demand for this uh, African creativity, you know, this mystery that comes out of the continent. We still have to also consider our people within continent and the fact that we need to clothe ourselves as well. So yeah. we are not a rich continent by any, we look, we're rich in terms of spirit, heart, and all the wonderful things that go but when it comes to monetary, we still have to, we have to make ends meet. And clothing is the last thing that people think about. So yeah. in that instance, for example, and this is hence the question earlier, is there room to create a more commercial industry within the textile space within the continent? We certainly know mm -hmm. that the niche is, is rife and it's existing and it needs further developing. And it needs to be a little bit more transparent so that we can all understand what's going on. 
So when you speak about the Turkish and the Chinese, and we know that this industry works like that because it's very easy to also pay off governments. We know that. So how do we now, as we are coming together on this particular platform, how do we take this thing to the next level? Do you see any room for a commercial product produced out of Africa for the rest of the world? Today, it's a question of lobbying, but it's also a question of story selling. I, yes. my country, in my country, we have a tradition of 14th century of textile. But unfortunately, we don't have enough people to speak about our captains, our know-how, our legacies. Our, you know that all the leather that you guys see were produced in Feld, which is a city in my country. We don't have this capacity today to have enough uh, marketing, to have enough storytelling to support this fabulous know-how, this fabulous productions that we can create in our country. And second, we don't have enough personal branding concerning our designers. I see, Sheldon, what you have in your background. I see. I imagine that is one of your creations. Why we cannot today speak that, for example, in the next catwalk of Balmain, all the leather items were produced here in Morocco near Casablanca by Moroccan designers. Trust me, that were designers from Morocco who designed the prototypes and the, the Maison Balmain was only given this fine-tuning aspects of the design. Why we cannot put our people, why we cannot put our histories and our legacies in front of these contractors that they will find business opportunities in our countries. Because uh, trust me, they sell t-shirts that use in maybe 7,000 liters to be produced. They sell jeans, yeah. blue jeans that they need 10,000 liters to be produced, you know? But it's ten, we are the, the cheapest, our continent is the cheapest exporter of water in the world. We export for each blue jean, $7, huh? seven for each $7 you can get, 10,000 liters of water. Why we cannot put today in all this COP23, COP22, why we cannot put this, this topic on the agenda of those people uh, managing this uh, taxes, uh, policies, this uh, uh, negotiations and this uh, strategies that will shape uh, the strategies of the world for the next decade. We have, we have to be supported by lobbying and we have to speak rudely about what Africa can provide to the world. I couldn't agree with you more, and I'm sure all of us share exactly the same sentiment. I think it is yes. very much, uh, yes. uh, you know, generally these conversations that go around, we always feel that, um, you know, there's always this disparity between the niche crafty product that we do on continent and everybody wanting us to produce something that is more commercial. Now, everything that you said, Adil, is working exactly against that. Everything in ISA's processing, everything within my processing, within design, works against the fast fashion movement. Yes. They're very so, much in a slow fashion space. So ISA, maybe, maybe I would like to just describe our process in our enterprise, because I think it's interesting and it allows me to say that there's a huge market and plenty of opportunities for us to develop new kind of textile industry. Like for example, when we started with the traditional weaving, we see the manjak weaving, but we made this traditional weaving evolve technically. That means that we widen the looms. 
So this simple, small act of widening the looms brought us to one market. And I think the traditional techniques all over Africa can be worked forward so they can get into the contemporary art and thus it opens market. So after so many years, we had widened those looms. So that's how we started. Then also we put together the structure, official structure. It was not a single weaver that was like in his house producing. We had all the weavers together, like 40, 50 people on one spot, organized. They got uh, working contracts. We paid the social security, we paid retirement, uh, the taxing, and we became enterprise, but based on craft activity. So that was the first step. Then after we got into looms, new developments in looms, so we widened the looms by getting some European end loom, one meter 40 centimeter wide. And this action opens again another market, a world market. That was the second step. And in the end, I went through all the textile industry in Senegal that were closed all over. I saw everywhere things were closed and they were throwing away their machine and people working on those machines, they were out of jobs. So we decided to collect some of those machines and to restart them, but using design and creativity. So the same machine that as I said before, one euro based textile could produce like a 10 euro or 20 euro or 100 euro textile on the same very same machine. And thus we have companies that mixes uh, mechanical, small industry, European type of looms, traditional looms. And for me, it's a new type. It's a way to bring things together and bring new opportunities and new vision for the industry. Because this type of industry is a proximity industry. That means that you can sell, like I'm selling in Abidjan, I'm selling in Senegal, those textiles that are produced mechanically because they are cheaper. In the same time, people can also buy few pillows and woven. And I'm exporting a lot of hand weaving, but this all get together because we are using the same thread. And actually I'm importing thread uh, from Egypt in order to respect like uh, the fact that I have uh, cotton, that I'm using cotton, but it's uh, in Africa, it's from Egypt. But last development was that the, there was a sleeping huge textile industry. It has been asleep for 10 years. And now we're negotiating to reopen. The spinning company is going to restart. I'm going to put part of my activities in the heart of this industry, in the sleeping industry, so I can revive it. And maybe in a few months, I can tell you better how this is going to be the mixing of design and industry. But we are into, into this process and they're restarting the industry. That would That's be our next right, I would like to go back to the idea of story telling telling the good story that uh, Adil was mentioning before. For me, there's a, a big question about educating the consumers mm -hmm. or getting them aware and conscious of what they wear. And I think at the moment there is a big uh, confusion between what looks African and what is African. 
and you can see it in the in the printed fabric especially the wax prints because it's gone huge in fashion at the moment worldwide and especially the design called dashiki or it's called addis abeba yamado it's got many names you've seen it everywhere it's fashionable in south africa and morocco as well i've seen it all over west africa in paris in new york all the people like beyonce and big <laughs> famous uh, people like to wear it to say well look i feel i have a, a sensibility close to the african people and i want to say it wearing this fabric and unfortunately uh, it looks african it's it federates all the african people but it has never been printed in africa it was right. created in holland in the 60s and nowadays 96 percent of it is printed in Asia, Pakistan, India, and China. But it looks African. In the mentality, when people buy this, they think they are helping the, the textile economy, the textile, the African textile industries, but it's wrong. So I think it, it's time to speak about that, to say to people, look, when you are wearing wax print, you have to be aware that only 4% of the wax print that is on the worldwide market comes from Africa, from uh, Kusombo in Ghana or Uniwax. And it employs, it, it gives uh, jobs to African people. But the rest of it either comes from Europe or mainly come from Asia. And again, for me, when I say looking African and being African is something uh, very important because products from Africa don't have to be ethnic. In the sense, I've been a consultant for a brand called Edun, and the idea was to make the fabric in Africa, but not when you wear them, it doesn't look necessarily African, but you have the traceability. You know that it was Andai, say, by Abu Aka Fofana for the indigo dyeing, and he uses the natural dyes can be woven by Isadion. So it is, it has a traceability, I mean, human uh, respects of the workers, uh, which means environment issues as well, economical issues. But when you wear it, it's not ethnic, it's not to look African, it's just to have a real impact. And I think, as Adil said, with the niche, or I, I know quite well the work of Isadion. It can be really exported because it's what you see first is the high quality of the product. You don't see that it is African. You just see that it's crafted. It's got very specific skills and it's the excellence you see first rather than, oh, this is an African product. You see, wow, amazing quality. This is why I say we have to educate the consumers to tell them the real story uh, between the object. And also, I completely agree with what has been said before. For me, the opportunities have to stay in very high level quality because it is quite impossible to compete with Asia because they are far away uh, beyond in uh, mass production. So it's really keeping the high quality and telling the story behind it so that the consumers understand the impact as consumers. Right. No, thank you for that, Anne. And, uh... Yes, absolutely agree. And you know, you can tell when a conversation is flowing beautifully and you're dealing with experts as you guys are, because you know, you're answering all the, you're making my job so much easier because all <laughs> you're answering questions Thank that you. haven't been asked yet. <laughs> so question guys, right. So tell me, how do we protect our nascent textile industry in the face of the competition coming from China and India? 
as well as from the destructive effects of the second-hand clothes market. So basically, you know, we can debate till the cows come home regarding when it comes to um, commercialization of textile in Africa. I know where you stand, ideal, and I agree with you, I'm sure, Isa, and, and as well. But is there actually room for commercialization of textile industry in Africa? I'll, I'll start with you, ideal, please. Anne was uh, telling something very clear. Can we compete with these Asian factories or companies that produce textile today? My answer is very clear. No, because they are too far. And why we will compete in, because we entrepreneurs are very clear in our market studies. If my competitor is very strong, I can also decide to take this part of the business from my business model. And this is the decision that we have to take. Now, I will give you a a small example that we have done here in Morocco. If you want to import textile from China or from India or from Turkey, you have to pay like 45% taxes on each product that you import. Why? To let the local production have more space for the local market. But we are 36 million guys, which is nothing for an industry. Having 27% of all the people living in this country are working on the industry, uh, informal and informal sector, because we have the two. You have to know it. Huh? In our textile industry, only 40% are formal. 60% are informal, which is the case in all the countries uh, today in, in Africa, but also in uh, Asia. My idea is very clear. Today, everyone is talking about this African market, this African union, this African community. Why we are not working together? Talk to our government, sir. <laughs> yeah, why, 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 why today we have like 600 or 700 million consumers in Africa who can buy our products? Why they are more attracted by Chinese or Indian or Turkish products? Why we have not this capacity today to sell our local productions to our people? Why we don't have this arsenal to protect our brands? Why we don't have this patenting processes, local African patenting, like in Europe? Imagine yourself trying to introduce a new brand in Europe. You have all the procedure. Imagine yourself trying to sell a T-shirt in the U.S. You have to face the, the FDA, which is something that have no interaction with our sectors, but they will control your products. Why we are not talking all together about this branding, patenting, and collaboration between African countries, given local and valuable uh, advantages to African-based companies to sell within our continent. I think that this is one of the strategies that we have to study. And the second one will be clear why we will not today let this industry to the Chinese people and concentrate ourselves to niches, Mm. for example, leather, for example, handcraft, high-end products, and let them work on the mass market. We cannot fight against these fast fashion industries. We cannot. We don't have these muscles to go and fight with them. This is a big issue in, in the sector, and we need to be very uh, pragmatic talking about this. Some people are talking about this uh, political uh, and diplomatic ways of, uh, of trying to find these uh, solutions between those countries, but doesn't work even if they have companies established in your country we have these cases in our in morocco 
they come, they build company, they build factories, they start working in your own country, but all the money goes back to the US. Like disco? Yeah, this is something that we need to study because imagine yourself today having a Chinese ambassador come in and try and giving you billions to start factories in your country. Yeah, they would pay wages only, but all the benefits will go back to China. This is how it works. And uh, imagine yourself buying also the raw materials from a Chinese supplier because you have a contractor's norms. You know, this is something that we need to be very pragmatic, please. We cannot fight with them. They are too strong. You will see you and you will hear. In 21, they will be the first power in the world. And India, the second one. Okay, so let's work on a new business model. Let's be disruptive. Like we say today with this Corona vocabulary, let's be disruptive. Let's create brands, let's create patents, let's be creative. Let's work close with, the, with young people, with universities. You know, we have a very beautiful experience here in Morocco, uh, near Marrakesh. They have started a cactus leather from cactus. You know, they create digital leather from cactus and everyone is very enthusiastic and very excited to work with this new material. We have even started importing ananas leather, incredible, which is uh, new, we use fish skins to start small accessories for our Moroccan rig industry. So let's try these new things because if we go back 20 years ago and try to fight with Chinese, with the Chinese industry or the mass market industry, we will lose our time, our money, the energy, the enthusiasm of this new generation of creators and designers and entrepreneurs that wants to grow with the continent. I just want to make a quick comment in between yeah. this. So we collectively really country to country need somehow to preserve what we know, what we've developed over the years, our processes, our techniques, but to work collectively is the most important thing. And that really the universal voice. And I'm sure, you know, UNESCO can bring that through beautifully and see how we can unite this on a larger scale continentally. Thank you. Thank you, Adil, for sharing that. Isa, sorry to interrupt you. Please continue. No, 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 not just uh, because I have a slight different opinion about this question of competition with Chinese and India and Asia in general. Because as I was telling you at the beginning of the conversation, textile is a too general term. And you have to describe exactly which textile you are talking about that brings that comes into the competition. Because we, we did our calculation, first, for example, sheets and curtains and napkins for hotel. We are producer of cotton. We have industry that could produce it very easily and be competitive with India and China because we are producing 100% cotton and good quality. And you have some people who would like to sleep in polyester sheets maybe, but some others, they only want to sleep in 100% cotton sheets. And so... You don't only have the luxury market or very low poor market. You also have middle markets, middle size markets. So I, I was just explaining that nowadays, you know, people have been building, building, building. You have hotel and uh, I met many hotel directors who appreciate on the fact that it's a marketing tool to say that my sheets are made produced in a company in West Africa. So I can use this argument as advertising argument. And we did the calculation to produce sheets when you don't have to import anything. 
You have your cotton, you have your spinning industry, you have your very basic mechanical tools, and it's easy to produce and to be competitive. It's just political will. I mean, yeah, and if you can produce uh, the basic, I like produce sheets, you can produce cotton, you can produce the base fabric for the tie-dye, uh, for the print, for this you can produce, really. And we should start there to restart the textile industry. This is what I'm talking about, you know. Uh, yes. If, yes. If, we, if we consolidate this African Union and if we consolidate this African homogeneity that we can have within this sector, trust me that we can, I will one day call you to say, okay, we have this in Morocco, these African roots, and we would like to communicate on our hotels, our restaurants, our residences, our houses, that we can have African produced high-end products or, or products. And trust me that our consumers in our country can pay till 30% more having this story selling that you just said, Aisa. Exactly. And uh, was talking about storytelling, and I'm talking about story selling, because if we sell what you just exposed to us today, trust me that together we can co-brand our services. I will come with a Moroccan brand, having a partner in Africa, and showing to the world that we can produce the same quality with natural products with a very fair uh, production and respecting this CSR rules. You have to know that in all the management uh, boards around the world, and I'm, I'm an, an independent uh, board member of big, uh, found big uh, companies here based in Morocco. And trust me that CSR is key. When you are talking to a CEO or to a board of directors concerning a buy-in process, today they will ask you these CSR arguments that you need to show. First of all, before talking price, and trust me, that is the same concerning today the European uh, multinationals and also the American multinationals because the governance codes are taking in consideration those uh, elements. Yes. Those, so, uh, those, so we are completely agree and, uh, and trust me that uh, Africa, if we start today working all together, trust me that we will... Uh, succeed and also there is the competition can be driven by the design it's all a question of design you may have a huge uh, capacity of production millions and millions but if you don't have the design for textile that's why they are, that, that's why they are the best copycats in the world and we are the yes. best creators yes. in the world yeah but even when you copy you know finally i discover after 30 years that i've hardly been copied in fact because it's not only the copy of the design, it's also the material, the combination, the texture. The, there's so many. The advantage of making textile is that so many ways of doing it and combination that it's difficult to copy. Print is easier to copy than weaving. Weaving is a lot more difficult. And that's why I got into heavy upholstery weaving products. Because it's much more, hundred times much more difficult to copy than just print which is easy uh, give this 4d dimension to our brands because you can perfectly do like we do in our laptops copy paste but yeah. we have we have to inject or to put in our brands a soul imagine sheldon creating a product mm. in south africa giving all his knowledge his culture his energy his feelings creating these new products Trust me, I am a brand lover. I'm really passionate about what I'm doing in Morocco, with, certainly with the Professional Association of Moroccan Brands. But 
if we put this energy, like we have done it in music, like we have done it in sport, like we, we have done it in so many fields, trust me, if we put this, all this energy in our brands, in our culture, in our creations, people can copy till the end of the days, but we will put the oh, difference definitely. and this uh, magical spice in our production, African production. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I deal everything you're saying in ISA and, 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 you know, guys, we also got to take into consideration that it's extremely costly to be patenting design. It's extremely costly to be, to be doing worldwide patents. And it takes a very, very long time, you know? So there's always that question of ownership. Who owns what? What is African and what is not, as what Anne was speaking about earlier, right? This is the next question, which I would say, so moving on to the controversial issue of Dutch wax fabric, which is what you tapped on earlier on, Anne. Do you think that better labeling of traditional African fabrics could help change the vision of wax as being quintessentially African? Historians, uh, Eric Osborne and Terence Ranger say that they use the expression of invented tradition. <laughs> and I would say that wax print is a really an invented tradition because it is inspired from the Indonesian batik and then it has been adapted for the African market and it has become a, a cultural element of uh, dressing in Africa. So for me, wax is not African, but because since the 70s, there are companies doing wax printing based in Africa it can have an economical impact in textile, in, in African textile mm -hmm. industry. So we've said before mm -hmm. that uh, Uniwax in the Ivory Coast and GTP are connected to Vlisco, but in Ghana, there is also Akusombo, which is 100% Ghanaian. So it can be, and it's employed around uh, 1,000 workers. So wax print can be a good element to develop the African industry and a good way to export as well what Africa can do. So for me, there is no really, as I said before, no opposition between wax and the rest of the textile. And also the real wax print process as what Akusambo is doing with the bubbling, the crackling, and still the unblock printing, which is like a semi-industrial process, is very good image because it's a high quality product. And I think this is what has been to, to be pushed up to show Africa as with its potential of doing high quality textiles. And I think that for a long time, what Europe has tried to do, especially France, was to make African people feel inferior. And you can see it with the dressing. They say, well, you, you don't dress properly. So we are going to introduce the sewing machine and to tell you how to sew the dress, what we call mission, the mission dress. You have to dress in the type we decide to do. And this is why maybe the secondhand clothes were so popular because people, sometimes they could feel they were not dressed properly when the women were wrapping the traditional fabric. The men would feel smarter uh, wearing a, a smoking, a costume and a, a tie rather than wearing the traditional gowns. I think the, the colonization in West Africa has been very strong in the impact in the mentality that what is African is inferior and what is imported from the North, from Europe, is better quality. And this is what we should tend to do. 
And this is why when people are educated and they get wealthy, they would prefer to buy a shirt in France, in a shop in France, rather than buying to a local African designers. But this is, I would say, until the 80s, maybe the early 90s, because since Chris Seydu, the Malian, I would say the first African fashion designer who comes from Mali, the mentality have changed gradually. And I think the African uh, fashion designers such as Alfadi or Kofi Ansa or Pateo have really worked on the mentalities to say, hey, you can be proud of being African and you can look fabulous wearing African textile. So uh, for the last 30 years, I've been traveling over Africa. I would say that people are more outdressed more and more African, I would say that Africana, Africa is getting Africanized when people have the money, when they can pay for it, they would choose, as Adil said, they would choose really uh, when they have the opportunity to go to something Africa. And it's more in the village where the income is lower that the people would go to secondhand clothing. Because nowadays you can buy an African top, say made with raffia, or you'd feel trendy with it you will feel good with it you don't say well i'm wearing that people in the villages i'm wearing really fashionable and i think really the turning point is not the textile producers it's the fashion designers who have managed to use the traditional textile and to put them in fashion to put them in light and nowadays I think that it's a big difference between if you go even to nightclubs, you would see African people dressed with local fabric, but with very modern style. Whereas uh, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, the women would wear long gloves and big hats and they would like, they would try to look like a Dallas or Dynasty or all the American TV series. So really, I think we have to, to congratulate the African fashion designers, especially in West Africa. I think they were the first to push the mentality and to say, you can go back to the textile of your ancestors, but get them modernized, get them adapted to your new style of life. Wow. And you've been clubbing for a very long time, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for that. Thank you for that insight. So, Aisa, is there anything you'd want to add or can I move on? Yes, I think uh, I'm very optimistic because as soon as we have a few uh, spinning factory back into place, uh, there's really plenty of opportunities to find. I would say niche markets are not that small. They are big niche markets. And I think the taste of uh, people nowadays, the market is more oriented towards specialty, more focus. People want to consume differently, especially nowadays. Well, I don't think the mass production is still there, sure, but it doesn't prevent another huge market to be occupied by us if we put together our good unit production. The question is how to produce correctly, not too big, not too small. So we can satisfy some market. For example, you is a market. You are my market, Sheldon. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I am only your market, Isa, without a doubt. And, um, yeah, but uh, I, I'm sure there is a plenty of options because people are really complaining. Wherever I go all over, people are complaining. There is no more thread. There is no more sheets. There is no more textile. All the tailors in, in Senegal, they are complaining. They 
would like to have sometimes pure cotton and good quality or transparent cotton, different qualities, and they don't find what they want. I'm very optimistic. And I think as soon as we restart a little, uh, I think we have to restart slowly uh, with a small organization. And uh, I'm sure it will expand very quick because I see what we have been experiencing is to say that there's a huge international market ahead of us. And I am not afraid at all. Beautiful. So this organization starts right now. Yes, Adil, you okay. want to say something? <laughs> uh, uh, and I would, like, I would like to add that we have today a great opportunity for our African brands, which is the digital. You know, we have this capacity today with the social medias, uh, with these uh, local competences that we have within the digital industry to create our own websites, to create this Yes. Our e-commerce e platform. Imagine yourself, Sheldon, that you can today discuss with people all over the world about what you can design, what you can produce. You can show even some samples of you can produce it for every customer around the world. I would like to ask, and I know that UNESCO is working on this, why we cannot support today SMEs and brands and African local uh, creators and producers to be digital because we can face the world showing our products and giving our services and showing our creativity. You can send videos, you can show photos, you can even do virtual catwalks. So this is an opportunity. Digital is definitely one of the challenges that our industry and certainly uh, the textile industry have to face for the next year. I'm not talking about 10 years or five years because it's short-term target that we have uh, to work on is to put digital in this sector and you will see that the, the results will, will come. Yes, today I perfectly can... agree. Yeah. I perfectly agree. The, the situation is completely different 2020 as 30 years ago. In Morocco, we have gained like 20 years within this COVID in six months because of digitalization. You know, the administration is completely now digitalized. We can communicate, look, we are all over the world and we can communicate via our laptops. You can via e-commerce securely pay your orders all over the world. You can also via worldwide players ship your production and your items all over the world. So it's time and definitely the time to train and to put this digital topic on the top of the priorities of the textile sector because the future is now and is digital. So in a nutshell, we should be fast tracking through this digital platform. So we can fast track anything that's going on within our worlds, whatever conversations we'd like to have and however we'd like to build. Of course, ultimately conscientizing our consumer and re-educating those that have lost, never been exposed to our various different processes when it comes to textile and garment making. Okay, great guys. You know, when we start talking about the following, I think you guys have answered it for me, but I'm just going to mention it anyway because it's on... It's on the itinerary. So do you think that the current mass manufacturing techniques practiced elsewhere in the world are suited to African fabrics? Or do we need to find a manufacturing model that suits us better? Should we be looking to mass produce using the Asian model? Or should seek more to make fabrics for a niche market so as to benefit from our comparative and competitive advantage? 
So you guys have answered that already. I think for the finished product, the, the most important thing is to stay in the niche market, but to provide the yarns, the threads for the weavers, to provide the sheet for the dyers. It is important as well to invest in the industry in mass production mills okay, to, to transform the first, you know, to have the first step. If you want to promote craft people, the first thing to do is to invest in mass machines as well. Mm to provide damas fabric for the weavers or voile for the, the Melfa, voile for Mauritania or cotton or damas for the, the Guinea um, indigo dyers. There is also a necessity of investment is in uh, mass production mills in order to be able to promote the niche and the excellence of craft people, of weavers, of uh, embroidery, of uh, dyers for me. Okay, great. So and basically, mass production when it comes to the tools and the skills required for us to make what we make so crafty. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. Fantastic. So, dear Isa, in the TEDx talk you did in 2013, you talked about the great paradox that brought the Senegalese industry from 70,000 jobs in the 90s to zero jobs in the 2000s. This was in 2013. The great paradox includes the necessity to transform raw material in general and cotton, in particular for Africans to enjoy the benefit of bigger margins while selling directly to the international markets. Cotton sold as raw material, one to two euros per kilo, with a loss of 10 to 150 times its value when transformed. The difficulty making large-scale hand-sewn clothes, but the necessity of finding a model to do so given that the international luxury market is hungry for African savoir faire. The necessity to adapt our ancestral know-how in order to answer the demand, but not having the technical means or the education to do so, is that great paradox. Can you please tell us where we are now in 2020? We can start with you, Isa. I think uh, I have answered a few, I mean, with a cross response to some of these questions. But Indeed. what I call the great paradox, in fact, it was the exported cotton for one or two euro being transformed in Asia and put into clothes where you had uh, some kind of new value added to it and the value would stay in Asia. Then right. this product will be sold in the Western world. The Western world would consume this product and uh, send it back as frippery, giving it for free to the papery market that comes in our countries and that kills our industry, all right? Second and closing. Uh, I the second and So I was looking for that. So this is uh, what I would call the great paradox is this circle, you know? And I found it really simple to stop and by design, always by design, even from mass market, if you have a good design and a good product, good quality, you can find a way to stop that. You cannot stop it completely, but you can do better. There is also, I would like to consider things not black, not white, but with intermediary steps. We have middle-sized markets that are for us to occupy. The luxury is uh, all process, it's really complex. And I know that we can also have different layer of market that we should look at. So that's my main point. And as I was describing, you have to go back to the base, which is how to produce, transform your cotton. 
and how to produce a good base for all the activities needed. Everyone is looking for thread. I mean, that's main big problem. Which thread? As Anne was saying, we're importing thread. We should not be. We could use our traditional or industrial cotton thread, both of them, mix them together. Yeah. Or, and then we can create beautiful bases for all the beautiful traditional techniques. We should start there because I'm sure positive that there's plenty to do. So, so where we start now in 2020s, what we are doing, that's what we are doing. Exactly. We are, we are into it. Uh, that's all I can say. Uh, regarding my own uh, production, I would like to have many other, I'm sure in Burkina, they have uh, restarted a lot. I noticed there is plenty of old factory closed, even in Togo or in all those countries. And, I did beautiful things. I even did curtain for Dior, you know, boutique using like old mechanical loom closed from the 70s. And you can do beautiful things out of discarded uh, machine. So, and we have plenty of those. We don't have to buy absolutely new, uh, new machine. We can just restart the spinning and then use what we have. We should go around, see what we have, and see how we can, through design, put together new products. Thanks. Like it's that. possible. It's not that difficult. It's really, we have done it. So I don't think uh, it's a big. Uh... <laughs> no, great. Thanks, Isa. So, Adil. Okay, guys, we're going to be wrapping up very soon. So let me, let's just get through the most important things before we do so. Adil, I'd like you to further elaborate on that, please. And also maybe just add in how it works in Morocco when it comes to this and what are the chances of intercontinental trade when it comes to, for example, Morocco could be producing the thread for a market in Senegal as well as Ethiopia, as well as South Africa for that matter. Could you just please give me your thoughts around that as well? We have uh, the capacities, the industrial capacities to serve uh, Africa without any problem, but we have a big issue, which is logistics. This is the only mm. way to develop a business today in 2020 or in 2021 is to have this logistics routes between our countries. Today, if you want to send ton of clothes from Casablanca to Senegal, you have to yeah. go first to Europe and then go back to, this is, this is how it works. This is how it works. You know, if I want to, say, to send something to Ethiopia, I need to go first of all to Dubai, and then from Dubai, Addis Abeba. It's the same for South Africa. If I want to go to okay. Johannesburg, I, would like, I have to first to go to Amsterdam and then from Amsterdam or Brussels and then go back to Johannesburg. This is the problem. Today, if we have this uh, aim or this uh, capacity to go and to explore what we can do all together in Africa, we have first to invest in this logistic. How we no. can help, well, how we can help today Senegalese or South African entrepreneur, eh? how we can help him to come to come to Morocco and to see how we can see. You know how much money you have to pay your flight tickets from South Africa to go to come to Morocco. It's like wow. three, it's like three thousand eh? dollars, and having like maybe thirty hour uh, flight to come and to see me in Casablanca here. So which which is crazy. First of all, logistics. Second, we have to create this hubs and clusters within African universities, African designers, and all together associated to create added value, like I say, in design, added value sales techniques, 
added value in storytelling, common storytelling, you know, our roots and our are also in, in Western and Eastern Africa. Why we are, we, I'm maybe looking like a white guy, but my, in my blood and my DNA is African, you know? Why we don't have this capacity today, federate all these energies mm. in one single point of contact, which is a cluster, for example, or a union or a lobbying uh, department that we have to create. The most important and to stay focused and operate to stay in my in my role of entrepreneur is logistic logistic right. is key in our situation because i can produce a blue jean here in casablanca at seven dollars but imagine how much i need to pay in logistics cost to sell it in johannesburg or in cape town no mm -hmm. way forget it you will get a brand from us or from china with the difference of 50% and consumer. You know, this is for me, the major problem is logistics. Adil, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's, it's always a topic that um, is once, this is definitely a hindrance when it comes to any kind of intercontinental trade. And it's very sad that we are in 2020 and we are a very creative force throughout the continent, yet we cannot overcome our logistical issues. Hope And look, I don't even think it's something that we need to seek foreign guidance on. You know what I mean? It's like, this is something that we should actually, as you had mentioned earlier, make use of these uh, media, digital media platforms and put word out there. Who knows? We could definitely get something together. And it's very, very important for us to get our logistics in order, to get our house in order for us to trade intercontinentally because it's very, very important. Okay, guys. So on a final question. <laughs> all of you, right, is whether or not we have the necessary skills on the continent to build a successful textile industry. Many of the craftsmen who used to create fabrics died without transmitting savoir-faire to the younger generations. So there's been no skills transferals. Moreover, many young people do not seem attracted to these jobs whatsoever. How do we change this and help young people to see that there is value in the sector so they are attracted to it. How do we build their capacities and promote training? In any random order, guys, you all begin with A. <laughs> and start with you. <laughs> I think that the first thing is to consider that textile, which means fashion, which can mean also all the work with beads and also leather, silver, like the, the Tuareg people in, in Niger, that these are valuable jobs. These are not jobs uh, for the people who are not able to go further at schools. This is the first thing, because at the moment, there is a very bad image of the people working in textile or working in fashion. It's usually people who couldn't go any further. And this is really sad, because I think that nowadays, you can make a lot of money with fashion, and it is an industry which can go high, okay? So the first is the image. And second, of course, is setting up schools. In West Africa, there are very little areas where you can learn weaving or even sewing in a formal way. It's usually doing some training in a workshop, and this is how you learn it. Or maybe because you are born in a family of weavers, or you live in, in an area where people do dyeing, so you learn just by looking at and practicing. But there's no formal education, no formal course. And this is quite dangerous, uh, especially for dyeing, 
because when people used to do vegetal uh, natural dyes such as indigo or color, you can learn from just like this, just by watching and imitation. But nowadays, because you use caustic soda and uh, hydrosulfite, chemicals, you need to know exactly the, the good mixing because it can be dangerous. Dying is very dangerous for the skin, for what you're breathing, and also where the dyes, when you finish the dyeing, where the water is going, where it is evacuated. It is very important to organize formal transmission and also to put it in, to recognize the value of this. Not to say that this is, well, you cannot do anything, well, you do something with your hands. No, you do something with your hands because you are creative, because you are invested in transmission of what your ancestors were doing. And you want to be part of this transmission, but at the same time to modernize it, to add something. Exactly like what Aisa did with the manjak. Her work is really inside the tradition of the manjak weaving, but at the same time, she's adding something. She's widening the loom or she's creating new designs, introducing new fibers. It is really not something where you reproduce, but to teach the students to become creators. I think there is really a necessity to do that. And also in fashion, at the moment, there is not a competition, but there are two types of schools. Either you go to a workshop and you just cut the fabric like this, or you go to a school, you learn how to write the sketch on the paper, to cut it on paper first and then on fabric, but then the training will be expensive. Also, uh, you don't have enough practice because you have to buy fabric all the time. So people prefer to do the training in the workshop where you have all the fabric coming from the customers and then you cut like this. But then you never know how to do it in an academic way and you cannot do three shirts exactly identical because you don't use the, the paper. I don't know right. how to say. I think that formal education for the craft is really an emergency to carry on in excellence. Okay, thank you very much, Anne. Agreed. And also, sorry, and also really to include textile and fashion with all the all the other uh, craft activities, as I said, the beading, the leather, the, the shoes, the belts, the bags, to understand that it's all one activity and not just the textile in one side, the leather in another, the beading all in interconnected. A... All interconnected, absolutely. Exactly. All right, thanks. Isa, can I have your last words, please, for now? So I completely agree that uh, we all have to go back to education. And we used to have a textile school in Mali, in Segu, uh, years ago. I don't know if it's still working. But I think necessary to install a, a school for textile, absolutely, in West Africa. And uh, I think we are lacking cruelly of uh, technical teaching. Science, we don't have. We only have school for management. We have a lot of school for new technologies, but no school for know-how, developing know-how. I'm currently working on this project of school with Ecole Bull in Paris so that we can develop skills in making because people are gifted. They can use their hands, but they all go into university or management school that they're not all adapted to that. So we need like uh, we need technical school for textile and for many other activities. So I perfectly agree that that's the point. But we have all people 
I met a lot of people coming from the 80s or 90s industries that are very skilled and they have helped me a lot. I mean, apart from weavers, in my company, I have a lot of people who used to work in the closed industry and they understand the textile very well and uh, they've been melting with the traditional weavers and that helped us a lot to develop our products. So it's existing, right. but we have to formalize it better and rationalize it and make build schools for this project. Great. Thanks, Isa. Thanks. Education, education, education. Education, yes. Adil? Yes. We compare Africa to Europe or to the U.S., and I think that it's not a good way of dealing with this uh, transmission process because our culture here in, Euro in Africa, it's an oral culture, you know? Uh, people in the markets or in our uh, handcraft uh, areas in Morocco are transmitting their know-how using words. People will not go and stay in schools for five years to have a degree because the sector of textile is insecure in our countries. People are not fan. They will not see themselves having careers in this sector because they feel that it's insecure. This is the first point. We are, I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about this alpha generation that comes to the markets today. And they are completely different mindset concerning this sector. And trust me, we have listened to them. and We know them very well. They are not attracted to the sector. Second point is, uh, like Asa said a lot also, we have to create a Pan-African Academy, helping all this energy, because we don't have enough capacities to have in each country a big school representing the industry. My point of view is to create like a Pan-African Academy who will help talents coming from all Africa or the world, because it's also a question about mixing those capacities, those create, this creativity also, to create added value and also to have this technicity of what the sector is asking for. Second point, for me, the university because we have, uh, like Aissa said, we have a lot of uh, business uh, schools, a lot of science schools and universities. Why we will not create a link between those universities and our sector to work all together on research and development? New type of textiles, new technologies, new way of producing. And this is for me, today, nanotextiles, still, uh, we, there is still opportunities in nanotextiles. You know, we have also this opportunity to work on local uh, raw materials and to how to transform this local raw materials to high-end or high-tech materials. So three points. First of all, we don't have to forget that we are in Africa. The sector of textile is a sector of uh, insecurity. People are not trusting our sector because they know that there is a big gaps between the real industry and what we are living every day here in our countries. The second is the creation of a Pan-African Academy where we can have the best talents of Africa and of the world and sharing experiences and new technologies. And second, why we don't use our resources and energy to work all together on the field of research and development associating the universities and the sector of textile. Fantastic, Adil. Thank you. That, that is wonderful final words there, guys. And, um, you know, this conversation is definitely the start. It's not the end. It's to be continued. It's definitely to be continued. All of us and all of the knowledge that we've gained over the years, the skills that we've developed, and the skills transferal that needs to, and this knowledge transcendence that needs to happen. This is the talking ground. This is the point. This is the starting point. This is where we're at right now. And we can only 
come up with more solutions than challenges by doing what we are doing. I thank you all for all your time. I thank you for coming on board and we definitely will be speaking again in the future. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wave. Found out more about the series on our social media accounts. We are the wave, we reaching out to the skies, Africa rising.